0: want to encourage you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 18. We've been spending roughly about the last six and a half, seven months in the book of Acts. And uh, we took a little break here for Christmas. And I got to tell you, I'm really excited to be back in the book of Acts. I've grown to love it and was kind of missing it, not being able to study quite as much in the book of Acts as we were doing Christmas. So I hope that, that you will again... Enjoy our time as we go through the story of the early church. Maybe to give you a brief recap since we've had a few weeks off. The book of Acts accounts for the, the, the beginning years of the church and the lifetime of what we call the apostles. So the men who, who walked with Jesus on the earth and then their ministry after he left. So it begins the first 12 chapters kind of cover the church in and around Jerusalem for the most part. And then at chapter 13, we have a shift where we begin to follow a guy named Paul. Now, Paul had been a persecutor of the church. His given name was Saul. And he was from Tarsus, so he's Saul of Tarsus. And he went around going after the church. And Saul on the road to Damascus had an encounter with the risen Jesus that radically changed him. So much so that that even his name changed. So everything about Paul, his passions, his identity, who he saw himself as, his desires, all radically changed. And Paul goes from being the persecutor of the church to being the apostle to the Gentiles. To being the guy who's going all over the Roman world sharing the message of Jesus and forgiveness through his death and resurrection. And so that's Paul. He goes on a a missionary journey. He starts some churches. Now, as they get some churches started up, new questions arise about theology and about how we're supposed to live. And so the guys all gather back in Jerusalem and they sort through some of these questions. And the big question is, what does someone have to do to be saved? Is it just faith in Christ? Is it circumcision? Is it following the Jewish rules? What is it? And so they pray, they seek God, and they again clarify the simple gospel message that forgiveness of sins comes from faith alone in Christ alone on the basis of his death on the cross. And so then Paul takes that message back to the churches that they had previously started and starts some new ones on the way. In the process of that, he lands in a city named Corinth. And that's where we come to in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. So after Paul left Athens, he went to Corinth. That's where we'll start and just stop for a second. So he lands in Corinth. I want to tell you a few things about the city of Corinth. It's actually the second largest city in the Roman Empire next to Rome. So he had been in Athens, and we all know about Athens. You hear about the uh, the wonders of the ancient world that were there. But at this time, the city of Corinth is 10 to 20 times larger than the city of Athens with about 20,000 inhabitants. It's a really interesting place because it's right in the middle of two major trade routes, one across the land and one... And so a lot of people come through the city. It's very prosperous, and it's the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. It's about 50 miles southwest of Athens. And I want to show, we've got a map here where we can maybe see it. It's what's known as southern Greece. And what you see is you have Athens over here on this side, on your right. And then across this little land bridge, the word is Isthmus, but I can't ever say that right, so we're going to go with land bridge, um, is Corinth. Now... If you look at it, it's a pretty interesting location. And so I want to tell you one of the interesting things about the city of Corinth. is you see that little land bridge, at its narrowest, it's about three miles. And so sailors coming around had two options. They could sail south all the way around the Cape of Malaya, which was rather dangerous, and would take about four times the time. Or they could dry dock their boats in Corinth and have guys roll them three miles across logs all the to the other side. Which with a smaller boat is almost always what people chose to do. And so the city of Corinth had this land bridge where they actually dry docked and rolled small boats across. Now there's a canal there. I think we've got a picture of that that I want to thank Dr. Carr for. Uh, there's a canal there. Uh, this is the modern one. The first one that was built was built, uh, started by Nero in AD 66 so that you didn't have to truck them over land. But uh, as you can see, that's still a pretty substantial shipping Uh, port, and there's a lot of boats that go in and out of there. So the interesting thing that you get from this about Corinth is that you had a lot of sailors coming through there and staying for a few days, which significantly shapes kind of the culture of the city. Corinth was known as a party town. In fact, there are ancient inscriptions in Corinth that said, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. (laughs) Okay, they really aren't, in case you don't like sarcasm. Um, it's kind of the Vegas of the ancient world, or maybe the New Orleans of the ancient since support city. Uh, and so, it was a lot of partying going on there. It's also kind of the headquarters of the worship of the goddess Aphrodite, who was seen to be the goddess of love. And it's said that there were about a thousand religious prostitutes there in the city. In just the city square, we, we know of over 30 liquor stores. So, it's a party town. It's the second largest city in, in the empire and it's infamous for its immorality. In fact, the word Corinthianized, they kind of made up a verb that would describe someone who was immoral. And so this is the city that Paul lands in to start to preach the gospel. So he lands in Vegas. He says, we're going we're to start a church here. That's what we're going to do. And so he begins his ministry. We find that in verse 2. As he gets going there, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, because he was a tent maker as they were. And he stayed and worked with them, and every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogues, trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, "Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. And Crispus the synagogue ruler and his entire household believed and were baptized. And so that's kind of the beginning of his ministry there. Not too long into town, he meets a guy named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And they have some things in common because they're both tent makers. Now, Paul is a really well-educated guy. He's really well-trained. Uh, he probably has the equivalent of what we would consider a master's degree. Uh, but he still had a trade. Part of the Jewish custom was no matter what you did, no matter how wealthy you were, it was your responsibility to teach your son a trade. And so every Jewish boy as a child would end up learning some kind of trade, something to do with his hands, as a matter of culture, that you handed that down. Uh, for me, much like in the way of growing up on a farm, we learn how to do all these things that I never do. Uh because dad wanted us to know how to do them, even though you know I, I get my oil changed at, at Jiffy Lube, you get learn how to do it. Because you, you need to know how to do these things. It's a lot like that. Not not that Paul ever needed to use it in his dad's estimation but that your kid just needs to know how to do this. And so he learns a trade, and he learns how to make tents. And so he's traveling around, he needs to support himself, so he catches up with another couple that makes tents. Now Priscilla and Aquila had been in Rome, and in about 49 AD, the Emperor Claudius was making some religious reforms where he wanted everyone to go back to the ancient Roman ways of worshiping with the ancient Roman gods, and he began kicking people out of the city that wouldn't comply. So if you were... A Christian or a Jew or a Druid, any other faith other than the traditional Roman gods, he began expelling them. And so what you have here is people from all over uh, the empire that had been living in Rome tossed out finding new places to live. Priscilla and Aquila are pretty sharp business people and they leave Rome and they just go to the second largest city where there's commerce to be done there. And they set up shop. It's about A.D. 50 when Paul gets there, so they haven't been there too long. They connect because they have a shared experience, a shared trade, and they have both a Jewish background. The scriptures never tell us the conversion story of Priscilla and Aquila, but it's very clear that they trust in Jesus and place their life in his hands. Because by the time Paul leaves, they're going with him as missionaries. So we don't hear the story, but it becomes real apparent in their friendship that they have committed their lives to Christ. And so as they're working together, the rhythm of Paul's life seems to be this. Work six days with Priscilla and Aquila making tents. Share the gospel with those that you meet. And on the Sabbath, go to the synagogue and share Christ with the Jews. That's kind of what life looks like for Paul at this time until his companions show up from Macedonia. Now, when Silas and Timothy get there, they begin to shoulder some of the financial burden. So Paul shifts gears and stops working making tents all the time. And devotes himself exclusively to the ministry. Now, this is really significant, particularly for any young guys that are considering going into some form of ministry. It is okay and altogether good for you to work a job in preparation for ministry. Or even while in ministry, for you to have a regular job. It's a good thing. You learn a lot. That's just a side note, and that was free of charge. So he's preaching the gospel there, and that's what he dedicates himself to entirely. But things begin to change on him. People begin to get tired of his message, because this is the message Paul preaches. He shows up to a city, he goes to the synagogue, and he goes, I know you guys are really religious, and you think you're good people, but let me give you the skinny on this whole deal. You're going to go to hell. This is how it plays out. You're a sinner, and all these religious activities that you've been participating in won't do anything to cover your sin. What you need is a savior. And this Jesus, who was the son of God, took upon himself the full wrath of God for your sin so that you might be drawn near to him. He suffered for you because you are a sinner. A lot of people get upset when they hear this, particularly religious people who think they're good. You see, most people that know they're sinners don't really mind being told that. You know, they're kind of used to that. In fact, for me, as a small kid, that's the only thing I was 100% certain of. Is that I was, in fact, a sinner. I was, I was square on that one. But religious people are, are particularly offended when they're told that their good works, that all the things they take pride in are absolutely worthless. And so eventually, they get tired of hearing Paul's message because there's no flattery in it. In fact, what it says is that, that man is, in and of himself, bankrupt. And has no innate value to God by nature of their own goodness. But that we have value before God because of His goodness. Because of His love for us that we did not merit. And so there's no self-glorification in here. There's no flattery in here. The message only honors Jesus and never honors us. And so they get tired of it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we get a little glimpse of why this might grow old to them. In verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, We are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death and to the other the fragrance of life. So this is what we say. We we preach the gospel. We live out the faith. And to some people... The smell of Christ, what we're doing, it's beautiful. This is life. And for other people, it's putrid and they don't want to be around it. And eventually, those who reject the gospel will not only reject it, but will reject it violently and viciously. So they become abusive towards Paul and he slides out of there. He says, guys, I'm done. I did what I needed to do. I shared the gospel with you. You're on your own. You want to reject Christ? Your wish is granted. And so he moves on, he begins preaching to the Gentiles, and he takes his ball and he just goes next door. You know, we say, I take my ball and go home. He said, I'm taking my ball and going to the neighbor's house. And he goes next door and he begins to preach the gospel there. And the ruler of the synagogue, the guy who had the keys to the building, becomes a believer. He trusts in Christ. His whole family does, and they're baptized. And again, in the book of Acts, we see the pattern of belief, followed by baptism. And every time we get there, I'm going to point that out, because it's a significant issue in terms of how we operate in the church. Someone comes to faith first, and then upon believing in Christ, they make a public proclamation of their unity and their solidarity with Him in His death, and then by faith to be resurrected to new life. That's what we depict in baptism, as someone goes under the water and up. And it always, in the Scriptures, follows belief. And so there is faith and there is baptism. And we have now the beginnings of a church in Corinth. We've got a few families and we've set up shop next door to the local synagogue. And then something really unique happens for Paul. He has a vision. Verse 9 says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack you or harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. You ever notice how visions always kind of begin with, don't be afraid? Just a note in the Bible, apparently there's something scary about them. But uh, what Jesus says, and I going to be important here, He's the Lord, in the New Testament when you read the Lord, that almost exclusively is a reference particularly to Jesus So he had a vision of Jesus. If you have a red-letter Bible, it is probably red, and that's a good decision by the publishers, because this is Jesus. What you'll find, the reference to God the Father in the New Testament, is typically God the Father of our Lord. So Lord, almost exclusively in the New Testament, is Jesus. So the risen Jesus again appears to Paul, and this time his word is not to be afraid, not to be frightened, even though the Jews have now become abusive towards you. Don't be afraid. No one will harm you. Now this is a really nice change for Paul because the normal process for Paul is he goes to a city, he preaches the gospel, he gets slapped around they throw rocks at him. That's normal. And then at night, he sneaks out when no one's looking onto the next city where he'll preach the gospel, get slapped around, have rocks thrown at him and slide out at night. That's kind of normal for him. And so when this vision happens and Jesus says, Paul, don't be afraid. No one's going to harm you. This is a great change of pace for him. And so Paul says, well, why don't we stay a while? We're going to hang out. Because everyone enjoys days when no one throws rocks at them. And so Paul had 18 months of those days. And he's sharing the gospel. He's preaching over and over again the simple message of forgiveness of sins in Christ and Christ alone. And so Jesus' command to him is not... Just don't be afraid. It's not just a comforting word that no one's going to harm you. It's also a command. And the command is to do this, is to be bold, to keep proclaiming the gospel, to keep speaking, not to back down, not to be disturbed, not to be frightened or distracted, to keep pushing forward in this ministry of sharing the glorious gospel of Jesus and to do it fearlessly and with boldness. And he tells him the reason he wants him to do that. We're gonna park there for a little bit because it, it bears some discussion. He says, I am with you and no one is going to attack you or harm you. And this is the reason because I have many people in this city. And because of that purpose, Paul stayed for a while. But what does it mean for Jesus to say, in Corinth, I have many people in this city? I want to give you the three answers that I found digging for this and what I think is probably the best one. The first one was to say that there was a large Jewish population that needed to continue to hear the message. That's the first kind of explanation that I found. It doesn't seem to work for me because at this point, Paul's already walked away from this ministry to the Jews. And this vision isn't a correction, isn't telling him to adjust course, it's telling him to continue in the same path. So he's not telling him you need to refocus your ministry and go back to the synagogue. He's saying continue the course that you're on. So it's probably not some large number of Jewish folks that Jesus really wants to hear the message. Some commentators have said, well, maybe because of the nature of Corinth, believers had landed there before and there's already a church there and they need help. Historically, that just doesn't jive. And when you read the letters to the Corinthians, you find that Paul clearly founded this church and there was no real existing body of believers before he got there. And the third is this, that it's the elect, that it's those who in time would trust in Jesus but had yet to. Those for whom Jesus had claimed as his own, who the Father had given him to redeem, who had yet to believe. And so in order for them to believe, Paul would need to stay and to proclaim the word with boldness. I want us to unpack that a little bit. Because we're going to see a really interesting tension in theology here. In Romans chapter I'll tell you what? why don't we start at Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 3. And rather than providing just a whole lot of commentary, I'm just going to read this for you. So any controversy, you can blame on Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, you find that reference of God the Father and Jesus as Lord. "...who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given to us in the one He loves." You were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Just maybe bullet point what this says. It says that we, that those who believe, were chosen beforehand by God in His infinite goodness and mercy to us. For what? to be adopted, to be brought into His family as sons and daughters. And this is probably the most beautiful truth in the world, is that us who rebel and reject and oppose God, who are by nature, because of our sin, enemies with God and opponents of His, that He has loved us so that before He even created us, He had chosen to draw us to Himself, to adopt us as sons and daughters. And at the right time, at the very Right moment, He opened our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. Not just to to agree historically that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. But not just to, to see that, but to enjoy it, to delight in it, to savor it. That our eyes and our hearts were open to see that truth. But God has chosen. He chooses us. And having heard the gospel and believing it, you were sealed and the Holy Spirit now has kept you secure until the day in which Jesus returns by his mighty hand. We see God giving infinite grace, choosing freely to save sinners. Who have done absolutely nothing to take a single step towards him. That's the people in Corinth. Jesus says, I've got a lot of people in the city. There are people in the city who the Father has given me to save. And these are people who run around doing ridiculous, wicked things. These are people who are Corinthians. We're talking showgirls and gamblers and people who do crazy things that, that make most soccer moms blush. And Jesus says, those folks who have done nothing except reject me and run from me, I have chosen to save. And so Paul, you need to hold tight. You need to stay put because I'm about to do something that's going to blow everyone's minds. I'm going to save these people. And I'm not just going to save them and get them to heaven. Look at what Ephesians says. It says, My intention is that they would be conformed to the image of Jesus. That they would be transformed to reject sin the way Jesus did. To love others the way Jesus did. To worship the Father the way Jesus did. So I'm not just going to save them. I'm going to, by the Holy Spirit, completely transform these people into something that they are not. Something that they could not be on their own. And Paul, you need to hang tight. In the Gospel of John, we see kind of how how this happens between Jesus and the Father. In John 25 verses, uh, John chapter 10, excuse me, verse 25 through 29, people are asking Jesus, look, if you're the Christ, why don't you just tell us? Why don't you just be straightforward about this? And Jesus' response is this I did tell you, but you didn't believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. But you do not believe because you are not My sheep. My sheep listen to My voice. I know them and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of My Father's hands. And I and the Father are one. So Jesus said this is how it plays out. God has given them to Me. My Father has given them to Me to redeem, to save, to forgive, to make my own. But they haven't yet believed, Paul. And so you need to be bold. You need to proclaim the word so that they can hear it, and having hearing it, believing it, and being saved, so that the Holy Spirit might mark them and seal them to complete the work of redemption. So God chooses, but Paul preaches. Romans 10 describes the interplay between this responsibility and the sovereignty of God. In verse 13 it begins, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So I want you to think through this. This is a statement that will make both Calvinists and Arminians squirm. God is sovereign and He chooses. And He chooses to draw men and women and children to Himself. But if someone does not share the Gospel, they will not believe And so there is the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And our responsibility as believers is this, is to share the beautiful message of Jesus that He has redeemed us, that God has loved us for no reason other than Him choosing to set His love on us, that we might not only be saved and get a ticket into heaven, but that we might be entirely transformed in this life progressively as we overcome sin by His strength and power and in the next life as He changes us in the twinkling of an eye to be like Jesus. That all of that is because God has chosen to love us. Not because we have done anything to make Him love us. Not because we have chosen Him. Because in our sin, we would never choose Him. But here's the flip side. If someone doesn't tell them, they can't believe. And the beautiful thing about what God does here, guys, is when it, God invites us as Christians to be On this journey with Him, to witness this redemption, to see it, and to celebrate with God when it happens. When we see someone pass from death to life, to rejoice with God and the angels in heaven. Because He and His goodness to us allows us to be a part of that. I guess if God wanted to, He could give everyone a vision on a road somewhere like He did Paul. But we would all miss out on what that process looks like. And none of us would get to celebrate it. So the balance of God's sovereignty and our responsibility is this. God chooses and we share over and over again. And what gives Paul, what gives him the strength to keep going, is the sovereignty of God. That this God is all-powerful. That no one can stay His hand. That no one is strong enough to overcome Him. That when He promises something, it is sure. That's why He can stay. And the sovereignty of God is also why Jesus has commanded Him to stay. Because there are those who will be saved that have not yet believed. And so both of them, because of God's infinite power... Besides, time to stay. And this is why we talk about this, guys. It's because if you don't rightly see and understand the sovereignty of God, that He is the Almighty King of Heaven who does as He pleases, you will not rightly understand Him or enjoy a relationship with Him. You will find yourself with constant anxiety. You will find yourself disobedient to Him. You will find yourself ineffective in ministry, because you will think that what happens is based upon you. And so I want to give you a couple things that believing and rightly seeing this God who is all-powerful, who, who no one can stay His hand, what it will produce in you, rightly understood. The first is peace. Rightly understanding that there is a good God in heaven who controls all things brings peace. It brings peace because I know the promises are certain. Because when he says, I will never leave or forsake you, he can deliver on that. When he says, I will never test you beyond what you can hold up. And when tempted, I will provide a way of escape. I can trust that. I can believe that because he can deliver. And so it brings peace because I know that that it isn't just a good God with good intentions, but it is a good God with all power and might who will deliver what He has promised. And I can rest in that. And I can have peace. And I don't have to run around with anxiety wondering what's going to happen. Wondering how things are going to turn out. Because God in heaven does as He pleases. And God in heaven has lavished His love and His kind intention on me for no good reason. And so I can trust in that. Because I don't just have a kind, gentle God with good intentions and no power. That isn't peace. A God who is not worthy to be praised, who has no power but is a nice guy, is no God at all. And so we can have rest in that, that God's promises are sure because He has all power and authority. So it brings us peace. It also brings us obedience. Because if we don't believe that God's judgment and His discipline are sure, chances are we won't follow Him. If we don't believe that when He says, if you turn from me, I will discipline you as a father disciplines his son, chances are we don't listen. Chances are we turn. That's why He disciplines us. And His sovereign power is what makes that discipline sure. So we know that if we turn from Christ, if we abandon Him, if we chase sin, that God, even mercifully to us who have believed, will discipline us, will correct us, will draw us back to Him by whatever means necessary. And for some of us, it requires pretty substantial discipline. But when we begin to believe that we can sin and do as we want, because God is good but not powerful, when we begin to buy that lie immediately we will find ourselves straying from Him. And so we can be obedient because we're reminded of a good and loving God who disciplines His children, whose promises of discipline and correction out of love are true. And we can live with boldness because we know His protection is there. That's what gives Paul his boldness here to stay. It's not because Paul's got a death wish, which some would say he might. It's because Paul knows that Jesus will protect him for the, every moment that Jesus needs him to accomplish this purpose. I'm not saying that as Christians nothing bad will ever happen to you. I'm not even saying that as Christians you won't show up for work and share your faith and be fired. That may happen. But what I will say is that you will be 100% entirely protected to the moment Jesus has you there that that no one will lay a hand on you until Jesus says it's okay so you can operate with boldness you can live out your faith with boldness because you operate under the protection of Jesus Jesus has your back and this doesn't mean we we act foolish it doesn't mean we act rudely or harshly to others. But it does mean we don't have to be afraid to share the Gospel, to share the message of forgiveness of sins through Jesus and Him alone with people. Because whatever the worst they can do is, is under Jesus' authority. And nothing will happen until He has decided it's okay. And then we're reminded of His goodness and His kind intention towards us and we know that nothing this world will throw at us will ultimately crush us because He is good to us. And so because of God's sovereignty, if we see it rightly, we can live with peace, we can live with obedience, and we can live with boldness. But if we don't see that, if we don't have a God who is a righteous king, who reigns and rules over all the universe, we have nothing. And you will see your spiritual life begin to spiral as that picture of God diminishes. As God begins to get smaller in your mind, maybe not theologically, maybe you would write down, yeah, I believe God's the sovereign ruler of the universe, the creator of all things. But practically, when you wake up, when you go to work, when you sit down with your wife or your kids or your husband, are you reminded then that he is the sovereign king of the universe? So you can live with peace knowing that His promises are sure. So you can operate in obedience knowing that His discipline is certain. And you can have boldness because you live under His protection. I think those are some things this year we need to to move forward with. My prayer for each of us is not that we discover five steps to this or that or a perfect life, but that we discover one step, that... That God would become central and preeminent in our lives. And that that Jesus would be placed above everything as our King. And if that happens, that's the kind of the one step to everything. You you kind of see this a lot in the Christian world. There's five steps to a better marriage and ten steps to getting this or that. Or, you know, fifteen steps to kids that behave. I think that's more like forty steps the longer we do it. Um, One step. gonna give you one step, the secret to life. Place Jesus over and above everything. See Jesus as great. And everything in life kind of falls in place after that. It doesn't get easy, it's not always simple. But when we look to that and we say Jesus is our high and mighty King who died for our sins, who rose again, who is exalted to the right hand of the Father, who will come again to judge the living and the dead, and we not only believe that and write that down in a personal doctrinal statement, but we affirm that daily and we delight in that, then that peace, that boldness, that obedience, that all follows. But it follows only when we delight in the sovereignty of God and the exalted risen Jesus. So this year, that's my hope for you. That's my hope for this church is that, is that that reality would just transform us. And we would look back on 2011 and we'd say, man, that was the first, the first year for me. Or maybe not, maybe just another year, but another year we saw God's faithfulness and another year or the first year that Jesus truly took center stage in my life and my family and in my workplace and in my bank account and in my life group and in everything else. Because when Jesus is center stage and exalted, a clarity and a peace come to life that give us boldness and a heart that desires to be obedient. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in your your infinite goodness to us, you have given your son that he died on the cross for our sin in our place that while we deserve death, while we deserved an eternity separated from you in constant judgment, that you poured out all of the wrath for our sin on him. As the scriptures say, that that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteous died for the unrighteous once for all so that we might be brought in, so we might be adopted. And Father, I am amazed at that, that, that as we run from you, that you grab us, in your embrace, and you adopt us into your home. And you make us your children, and you give us your inheritance of eternity with you and your Son. Father, I pray that that reality, and that the reality that your Son has been resurrected and seated at your right hand and given all authority and power, I pray that that would be the central truth in our lives that we would place your son at the center of everything and that we would, with all of our might, by the Holy Spirit's power, that we would exalt him in every area of life. Father, I pray for, for this church. And I, Lord, I want to pray specifically for people who are struggling in different areas of life. And that that struggle in many cases is because Jesus has not taken the center there. Not always, but, but for many people it will be today. Lord, and I would pray for them that by your Spirit that you would illuminate, that you would open their eyes to see those areas of life, not just the smaller symptoms, but the bigger one, that Christ needs to be central. And that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would enable them to make that commitment in their hearts today. And that by that same Holy Spirit, Father, that you would... Enable them to make that commitment every day so that every morning we wake up with a desire to exalt your son. Lord, and we pray for Tombaugh Bible Church, for her ministries. We pray that Jesus exalted would be at the center of everything we do. That he would receive all the praise and glory and that we would see many lives transformed by the gospel. Starting with our own. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name.